Hey, we are continuing our series this morning on August 28th. The series is called Elephants in the Room. Did the Messiah really say that? Looking at the fourth section, the fourth mini-series or book within Matthew's Gospel, chapters 14 through 16. And the whole idea is that uh, a lot of us either misquote Scripture or misrepresent it or dismiss it altogether. There's just hard parts in Scripture that um, we tend to ignore. And Jesus says some pretty cutting and sometimes even confusing truths. So the goal is to adventure into the original context and discern what the meaning is for us today. That's the goal of all Scripture, but for sure, uh, these elephant-in-the-room passages, passages like last week's, you are naming uh, or calling an impoverished woman a Gentile dog or telling the disciples, you need to feed them or you give them something. The elephant in the room this week is uh, you'll be rewarding according to what you have done. You'll be rewarded. And so I want to name that's a series, but I also want to start with a question. Questions about the afterlife, afterlife specifically with God, whether that's your conception of heaven, the kingdom of God in its completement, or its incompleteness, rather. What, what will it look like? As you think about life with God, as you think about what our life will look like after we die with God, what will it look like? What will it be up to? This is essentially a conversation about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God. And heaven and the new earth, which we'll be getting into in a bit, that ultimately falls under that umbrella. That is the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. So in the kingdom, in heaven, will you be able to... And these are some fun follow-up questions because it can be a very ethereal conversation. Will you be able to plant a flower or an avocado tree? Will one be able to design a park? Will we be baking cookies in heaven? And will they be the perfect cookies? Or could you approve upon them? Will you be able to surf completely? Or will we have an opportunity to learn? Will one provide for others? Will one be serving? Or is everything coming by way of some saintly waiter? These ultimately fall into a larger category of mystery. They are fairly unanswerable, though we can give our answers. But I think they point to a very important question of what is good. If God is good, and the kingdom of God is good, and it truly is. What will be good in heaven? All of it, yes. But what will that look like as we commune with God with one another? Is trying new things part of something good? Is learning and improving good? Serving, will our serving of others be good? Is working the soil good? And will these realities, trying, learning, serving, working, exist within the kingdom of God when it comes in its completion? Will this be heaven? 
See, a grounded and biblical perspective on Christianity teaches us that we don't die and go to heaven per se. Rather, it explains that you and I, when we die, we await the resurrection of our bodies and what will be a renewed heaven and earth. Now, this can sound similar and to semantics to some, but the implications can diverge quite a bit when we think about the afterlife and the goal, the destination. And we don't have time to get into a lengthy conversation of that. There are volumes written on this about those who died and await their resurrection. How long is the wait? Jesus says to the thief on the cross, you'll be with me today in paradise. There are views and the details of the destination. I mean, Jesus talks in John 14 about it being a house of many rooms and revelation. Revelation, we see that there's a city made of gold. But as we back up, is that Jesus borrowing from the prophetic poetic language and revelation using apocalyptic genre to demonstrate the symbolic nature of it? Now there's tons of conversations about who's in and who's out, and we'll probably hit upon that in a bit as we travel further into Matthew. But either way, if you have that conversation, it involves a great deal of humility. What I believe is clear for us today is that the afterlife, life with God, the kingdom of God, is a bit more earthly than we may conceive. We may have ideas of clouds or gold, but it may just be a bit more earthly than we might conceive. The last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Perhaps it'll look a bit more like we see God intended in the beginning. God saw all that he made in creation. And it was very good. There's goodness in it. So, so this leads to an important question today. And granted, this is high philosophy, right? What, what good can be seen today? What good can be seen today? And I think one one thing I need to address is that the answer is not nothing. Sometimes we can look at even Jesus' words where he tells a rich young ruler in Matthew 19 when he calls him a good teacher. Jesus says, why, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. I think sometimes we can think about, oh, the only good thing is God. But Jesus also says right after that, if you want to enter life, keep the commands. He's basically referring to those who keep God's commands is doing good. I don't think much can argue with that. I think he's actually trying to help this rich young ruler actually see that he is a good God because he ups the ante in terms of commands. He tells her to do an even greater good. He says, go and give all your money to the poor and then follow me. This is good. So what good can be seen today? James says, every good and perfect gift comes from God coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. What good can be seen today? Another way to ask that question is, how have you seen glimpses or clear demonstrations of the kingdom, i.e. goodness in your daily life? All of this conversation about afterlife and good and goodness today, I'm incepting a bit of what is the kingdom, what is our part in the kingdom. That's what I'm trying to get through today as we think through 
our elephant in the room statement that I alluded to earlier. Because in Matthew 16, there's almost at the complete crescendo of the chapter, Jesus says in verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. It's a call back to Psalm 62. Paul actually references this line in his book of Romans, Salvation by Faith Alone. Rewards. I think that's the, the triggering word. What, what's the deal with these rewards? In the previous chapter, we talked last week about God's kingdom being open to all people, the inclusion through the faith of the Syrophoenician slash Canaanite woman, which then is uh, compounded by the feeding of the 4,000, which definitely involved non-Jews, i.e. Gentiles. This inclusion, it's a demonstration, early demonstration of the kingdom of God, that this is inclusive. And then as we lead up to Matthew 16, there's a lot going on. There's confusion again about Jesus. There's a clarifying statement about Jesus. Then there's the cross of Jesus, which can bring confusion and clarity. Uh, the confusion is for religious leaders. They ask Jesus for a sign, though he's given many signs. Jesus says, I only give you the sign of Jonah, which in turn means his resurrection. And what he's trying to basically out as it comes to those religious leaders is they've already made up their minds. If they were to show him a sign like Elijah showed the sign of fire coming down from heaven, it would light them up. They've already made up their minds. They don't need a sign. They don't need any investigation because there's not an openness to who he is. If people have a significant openness to who Jesus is, then they will see him. If they don't, they can't see him no matter what he's done. But some do see. There's clarity about Jesus. And one of the greatest questions of all time asked from Jesus to uh, his disciples, who do you say that I am? This is the most important question. Who do you say that I am? To which Peter responds, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus declares his identity. Blessed are you, Simon, for this was revealed to you, not my man, but by my Father. And he talks about his identity. He will be the rock. Will, and his responsibility that will carry this movement on after Jesus is ascended. And, and in that, we actually have two of the most important questions. Jesus asking us, who do you say that I am? And then us asking Jesus, who do you say that I am? You're God's kid. That's a very important question. Now, that's my homily on that section. We need to get to where we're at. And to get where we're at, it sets up with the cross and really the confusion about it. Jesus says after this statement, after he elevates Peter and then he actually rebukes Peter because Peter, well, this is the section here, Peter doesn't really get it yet. He gets it, but he doesn't. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things in the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, must be killed, and on the third day, raised to life. Go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and said, Never, Lord. Haven't you read Psalm 2? Look at the book of Daniel. You're the king, and the king is meant to come in glory, and this king is a conquering king. It's a mighty Messiah. And Jesus says, Peter, get behind me. Satan's working in you. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have mind, you don't have a mind that concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The Messiah is mighty king, but the Messiah is also a servant, one who suffers. We see that clearly. 
in Isaiah's in uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, if you just look read through this week, Isaiah fifty three, or it's actually fifty two verses thirteen through the whole book of fifty three, you'll see it. But here's just one line, Isaiah fifty three eleven, that is really helpful when you consider who Jesus is, particularly in his ministry. Fifty three eleven. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Jesus is a suffering servant. Service, then, is essential to this kingdom life. It's who God is. It's who we are. It's likely what the kingdom of God will be like. So then Jesus expounds upon this, verse 24, and this is our scripture for today. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it will be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will, elephant in the room statement, reward each person according to what they have done. Then he ends with a statement, verse 28. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that line right there refers to either Jesus' second coming at the completion of the kingdom, refers to possibly a few believe it's his ascension if you look at Daniel's passage, or it refers to the next section, which we'll be reading next week, the transfiguration. But the elephant in the room statement is, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what they've done. Rewards. Doesn't rewards sort of reflect a works-based faith? What's the deal with these responsibilities? That leads to rewards if our worldview is one of grace-based faith. It's all done in Christ. Why rewards if grace abounds? That's the question. Why rewards in a grace-based faith? That's the elephant in the room that we want to expound. And I believe this is where a conversation about the kingdom of God and goodness and heaven and earth as heaven and renewed heaven matters. Remember what is good. I believe togetherness, creating, serving, potentially growing with the one and others who love you completely, this is what our heart desires. This is the section of really what Matthew 14 and 20 is talking about, laying down our lives so that we can serve others and find our lives, saving our life. By losing it. This is the upside down kingdom. It's not about us being served, but serving one another out of our joy and likely a portrait of things to come. Thus, maybe the kingdom of God looks a little bit less of like me and my mighty chariot having all the things I want. My big old place, my house made of gold, what have you. And more like open roads where we walk with friends, streams beside us, the wind of our spirit to our back, taking note of the changing colors of the Japanese maple, taking a bite of summer watermelon or a honey crisp apple or a vine-grown cucumber, and talking about the next project we have together with new friends and old. 
Or maybe I'm a heretic. Maybe I'm a heretic. But I'm trying to challenge us all to think. Why rewards and a grace-based faith? And I think a lot of us understand the translation between being saved by faith alone and a life of good deeds. In fact, if you had 10 seconds, maybe 20, to describe how does a life that is saved by faith translate into good deeds, what would you say? What would you say? I'd say if God loves us and we truly receive that love, that love will flow in us and flow through us. God's goodness is received. The Holy Spirit is going to do a work in our lives. It's not just our work. It's actually God's work in us that flows in us and through us. Why rewards in a grace-based worldview? Our grace-based efforts demonstrate just God's kingdom renewal, that God is working in us and through us. There's some scriptures there. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God working in you. There's Jesus simply saying, this is my command, love one another. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We'll talk about that. And, and I feel like statements like that are a bit mic dropish. It's like, yeah, dude, we love because God first loved us, which is absolutely true and biblical. So I think there are some helpful subpoints we need as we talk about rewards in a grace-based worldview. A grace-based faith, i.e. our worldview. I think the first thing we need to understand is why rewards in a grace-based faith. Yes, it demonstrates God's kingdom renewal. That's God's working in us and through us. That's the overarching picture. But it's also saying, very simply, grace works because grace works eventually. Jesus said to his disciples, who are once made disciples, you're entered in. I'm lovingly here. You've got to deny yourselves like I deny myself. Take up your cross like I've taken up a cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life is actually going to lose it. But whoever loses their life, this is huge. We'll find it. We find our lives by God's grace and by God's grace working through us. We're not saved by works, of course not, but we are saved for works. We're saved for works. We have an opportunity by God's work in our lives to enter a process of becoming like Christ, his disciples, for the sake of others. God's saving leads to our self-giving. We're not saved by works, but we're saved for works. The truth is that we return a bit to how we were made in the beginning. We were made in the beginning, however you read Genesis 1, whether it's, well, I'm not going to get into the interpretations. There's quite a few. But on the sixth day, we were made, and the seventh day, God rested, and we were made to rest with God. God made us for the weekend, but after the weekend comes the work week, and we're designed to work from this place of rest. On the sixth day, God created humanity. The seventh day, we rested together, and then the work week comes back, and we get stoked. We don't get a case of the Mondays. We get to work with God, to cultivate the earth, to create, to sustain, to help, to heal, to feed, to clothe, to visit those in prison, to love and raise disciples who will do the same, and to work well. If you like the work, that's okay. That's God's design. Be sure to rest in him, and then let's go. But what about this rewards piece? Why rewards in a grace-based faith, i.e. worldview? Well, I think truly grace doesn't keep score of what we get. 
Why rewards? I think we don't really work for the rewards. Grace doesn't keep score of what we get. I mean, look at the very next verse that Jesus talks about. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? When we think of rewards, we tend to think of a worldly mindset, a nice home, abundant salary, the classic depiction of the modern family, car, whatever. Seems like this is exactly what Jesus is telling us to put aside. Put, a, put aside what the world thinks is good and worldly rulers. And in the end, in the end, rather, I believe our Western individualistic and even capitalistic conception of rewards are tertiary. God is the reward. Others ultimately are reward. We're here to serve God and others. And they will always be the gift we will receive. When you serve, you find the reward in the serving. You take a child in your home, that's God's gift to you. It's not another jewel in your heavenly crown. And, and you know that because you see those who serve and just don't care about why they're serving other than just God's grace and God's love that they love doing it. Those who truly long for the king don't really need any reward other than loving God. You see this in others. It's so amazing. Sometimes it can be frustrating. You're like, how are you serving so well? Like, God loves me. I, I love it. I'm like, oh my gosh, those people. They don't care about reciprocation. I want to be those people. They're awesome. The people who feed, clothe, heal, visit, love. These are the people Jesus talked to in the crux of Matthew 25 that we'll talk about in a month or two. It's reminiscent of the kingdom moving forward, which we see in the previous chapter. I don't think grace really keeps score of the rewards that we get. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Perhaps I should be more motivated by my rewards. Maybe that means I barely get into the kingdom. And maybe get some small little back house in the back. And that's fine. Because if there's a table there, I'll, make, I'll ask Jesus for one. And hopefully I can have you over and I can cook for you. And that'll be my reward enough. Just you, me, being together. Why rewards in a grace-based worldview? Well, grace via the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit via grace, both and. They grow us, and part of growth is greater responsibilities. We like having more responsibility. I mean, Psalm 62 talks about the power of God. This is where this comes from. This growth. Jesus is quoting Psalm 62, verses 11 and 12. One thing God has spoken, two things I've heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love and you reward everyone according to what they have done. The first matters that God gives us the power to follow him, and it's rooted in God's love. And then we get busy. As the kingdom spreads further, it spreads into our lives, getting us more life, more of God's power, more vision, more, and many more times more responsibility as a result of our faithfulness. This is what I believe Life is about, and the kingdom of God is about, and what life will be allowed when we head into the kingdom of God. And Paul talks about this idea in Ephesians 2, and all he's doing is giving a commentary on the life of Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself, it's a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared, prepared in advance for us to do. 
USC great philosopher theologian Dallas Willard said grace hates it's it's a it's a not opposed to effort it's opposed to earning grace is it works and I believe we will gladly ingrace effort for one another in God's kingdom here in our renewed earth. In this account, Jesus makes explicit that this is the kind of life we belong for, the kingdom life. So what responsibilities does God have for you now? Grace grows us and part of our growth is greater responsibility. I wanna end with an old Zen parable that is told in a few different cultures Sometimes the spoons instead of chopsticks, though it's always the same message. And, and in church, I did a, I'm doing a visual um, interpretation of this with my buddy Greg. So once upon a time in a temple nested in the misty end of the South Hill lived a pair of monks, one old and one young. The young asked, what's the difference between heaven and hell? To which the older responded, there are no material differences, replied the old monk peacefully. None at all? None at all? Asked the confused young monk. Oh yeah, both heaven and hell, they look the same. They all have a dining room with a big hot pot in the center with some delicious noodles that are boiled, giving off an appetizing scent, said the old priest. The same size of the pan and number of people are sitting around the pot and are in the same two places. But oddly, each dinner is given a pair of meter-long chopsticks that must be used to eat the noodles. And to eat the noodles, must one hold the chopsticks properly at the ends. No cheating is allowed. The Zen master went on to describe to the young monk. In the case of hell, people are always starved because no matter how hard they try, they fail to get the noodles in their mouth. But isn't the same happens to the people in heaven? The junior questioned. No. They can eat because they each feed the person sitting opposite them at the table. They each because they feed the person sitting opposite them at the table. You see, that is the difference between heaven and hell, explained the old monk. Could this be an appropriate portion of the renewed earth God promises for those who love and those who love him? I hope so, because when that day comes, Christ will repay each person according to what he or she has done. And the clear implication is those who live for themselves will repay with judgment. And those who have received God's life and taken up the cross of self-denial to follow Jesus will receive the reward of God and one another. It'll be always, it'll be just what you've always wanted. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give me and us the strength today from your power to serve you and others through the abundance of love, not through the gain of reward, not through the hope of what we will receive, but through the freedom of what you've given to us. Lord, we see you on the cross serving us. We recognize that each day is an opportunity to take up our cross. So when we are tired, Lord, when we have a vision of your cross and your love, and would that empower us, would that enable us, Lord, as servants towards one another in a world that is so hungry. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.